0: Hello and welcome to Table Talk, the Spectator's food and drink podcast. I'm Olivia Potts. And I'm Laura Prendergast. And today we are delighted to be joined by Aidan Hartley. Aidan is a writer and entrepreneur. Born in Kenya, he was brought up in Africa and England, and he joined Reuters as a foreign correspondent and has worked in Africa, the Balkans, the Middle East and Russia. And he's written the Spectator's wildlife column for the last 21 years. His next book, Paradise of Thorns, will be released next year. Aidan, welcome to Table Talk.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Aidan, as listeners know, we always start at the beginning. What are your earliest memories of food?
1: My very earliest memory is Somaliland, watching an elderly man chop their heads off chickens on a Sunday before lunch, reciting the Koran as he did so, and watching these cockerels leaping about until they flopped down and were taken off to the kitchen to be cooked. My dad was working in Somalia and Ethiopia, um, and we would often spend our lives on safari. In those days, it wasn't a trip to a wildlife park, it was uh, a long journey through the bush or the wilderness. And we lived uh, out of a tin box, and wherever we were at four o'clock in the afternoon, he would pull off the road and brew up, and then a couple of handfuls of rice would be tossed into a saucepan on an open fire and we would uh, lay out our bedding rolls no tents in those days if it rained we'd pull the bedding rolls under the car and we would uh, live in the open like that so it's a pretty rough and ready existence
2: sounds very intrepid and we normally ask what were meal times like what were meal times like in that kind of environment
1: well under the stars um there were often wildlife nearby you'd often hear lion in in kenya And uh, uh, we would sometimes camp by a lake in Ethiopia and catch trout. I remember we caught 36 trout in one day and smoked them all and lived on them for weeks. Otherwise, we'd get a a leg of goat somewhere and, uh, and cook that up over the fire. My parents were the sort of products of the end of empire. My mother was the world's worst cook. Um, But she would sit on the end of my bed and tell me stories about Burma, where she joined up as a teenager in a women's unit, and after the fall of Rangoon, she and the other women in her unit set up a a tea dance, and they made lots of cakes. And when the POWs, who were released from the Japanese uh, camps, came out, they couldn't eat the cakes because they were so thin, and they couldn't dance. Anyway... My parents, they went through the end of the Raj in India, Aden, Mau Mau, all of that sort of thing. And at the end of uh, the 1960s, they ended up in a shack on the beach on the north coast of Kenya. And meal times were pretty chaotic. My mother wouldn't cook. And um, so she persuaded the gardener to come in and to cook the meals. He was more of a sort of colorist than a sorcier. I remember that... Uh, Chicken came with chocolate sauce one day. It was the right colour. And another time, I think, some paraffin made its way into the uh, into the vinaigrette. Eventually, um, we were told that we must go to school in England. And my mother insisted that we should live on a farm in North Devon. And she was uh, once again set against cooking. My brother came home one day and and found a uh, a terrible several-day-old chicken in the Arga, and so he took care of me after that. And so when I got to school, a lot of people in the 1970s have sort of terrible memories of school food, but I got three square meals a day, so I I loved it. And when she asked what my first meal was at school, I said that it was munched-up meat and hardened potatoes. But I, I thought it was great, and boarding school had... Wonderful roasts on Sundays. I love tapioca pudding and semolina and all of those things. And I particularly like 1970s tuck. All of the sweets in those days used to have fantastic names. I mean, I, I've got a list of them. They're quite extraordinary. But uh, for me, school was was pretty good in those days. When I was about eleven, my godfather died, and he left me some money, and I bought an air rifle, two two air rifle. And if I got close enough to a pigeon or a rabbit, I could kill it and cook it. I also got a fishing rod. And our neighbour was Ted Hughes. And he taught me how to fish, along with my dad at other times. And so I spent a lot of time catching trout and cooking them and uh, feeding my mother, who would sort of uh, leave off her embassy cigarettes and campari and come and enjoy a trout. And I became a sort of forager, on the farm in Devon and there were lots of cob nuts and I'd scrump apples, there were blackberries and, um, you know, it was a sort of wonderful existence that kind of set the tone for me because I I felt sort of very able to kind of live off the land and that's how I sort of started cooking at a pretty early age.
0: It's a fairly um, unusual introduction to meat eating and, and, and fish eating, an invaluable one, I suspect, but I, I'm interested to know... Did you enjoy the food itself or was this a sort of self-sufficiency thing that was the the attraction of it? Did the enjoyment of the food come later? How did it affect you?
1: Well, to begin with, I began to realise the joy of catching a fish and of treating it well, even at an early age, working out how to make it taste good. And I think that this is partly trying to impress my mother and also... To sort of respect the fish, I know that sounds strange, but as an adult, that's what I really began to think about quite a lot. And even today, I feel it's a terrible pity when you go on a posh shoot in England and you never get to eat the pheasant that you shoot. And when we go deep-sea fishing off the coast of Kenya, if you catch a yellowfin tuna, the skipper will take the fish. And I always feel quite a sense of ownership of the animal that I've killed. But um, I think that, you know, to an extent, I was trying to find my way around the countryside and get to know the sort of contours of the seasons and that sort of thing. But of course, it was pretty spontaneous when I was a teenager. Very sadly, my parents uh, sold the farm in Devon when I was 15 and... They went back to Africa, lock, stock and barrel. And by that time I was at public school in Dorset and uh, the dining room was known as Central Feeding or otherwise known as the Trough. And so, you know, I felt kind of divorced from the farm and the land and the things that I had grown up to that stage feeling very close to. Then um, when I went to Oxford, I thought that the food was very good, quite institutional uh, I found myself in my second year living with uh, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall and I gave him his first gig writing for a magazine that I was editing when he was doing restaurant reviews. And I remember one time he uh, he cooked some spaghetti that didn't work out and he threw it in a rage against the wall and it stuck there against the plaster and stayed there for several days. But at institutions I sort of felt that you know I wasn't really close to the things that I later got quite attached to, you know, in in my life farming.
2: Aidan, after university, you moved back to Africa to work as a foreign correspondent for Reuters. Was the food part of the appeal for returning to Africa?
1: Not at all, but it became something that was part of uh, the adventure. My first job with Reuters, because I was very junior, and this is sort of before satellite telephones became uh, a thing, was to cover guerrilla-held territories across East Africa, in South Sudan, in northern Rwanda, in uh, Ethiopia and Somalia. And so I would be out beyond contact of the Bureau for several weeks, and in one case uh, a couple of months uh, at a time. So I would be eating either what the uh, guerrilla fighters were eating or in little villages where people would serve up uh, their traditional food. And sometimes it was pretty tough. I remember Ethiopian food is very spicy. And when I was a child, when I was eating injera, which is this pancake that's made out of teff, which is this sort of biblical red grain, I remember thinking that it tasted uh, of uh, old kitchen mops. But uh, while I was on the road with uh, TPLF uh, rebel fighters on their advance to Addis Ababa in um, in 1990, 1991, I remember, you know, starting to get used to it. They they have a a dish called doro wat, which is a a very hot, spicy chicken. I discovered in one cafe that I could have something called wat, what is not hot. And that sort of got me through it. But um, I'd sort of, you know, eat by the roadside for for years. And uh, I got used to Kissera, which is a, a sorghum pancake, In in Somalia, you know, piles of rice with camel meat and a banana on top and ugali and, you know, all of the uh, staples that uh, Africans eat, which are made out of maize. In Congo, I ate uh, caterpillars and smoked monkey flesh. And, you know, it was just something that came with the job. And uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed it until the American troops arrived in Mogadishu and they brought along these horrible things called meals ready to eat. Their military rations were truly disgusting, mostly made of pork. Then I remember the Italian and French contingents arrived and they had much better rations. The uh, uh, French, I think, had bottles of wine and cognac and the Italians had had good food and alcohol in their ration packs as well. It's something that uh, has become an adventure in itself. In Mongolia, I ate... Sort of dried sheep's entrails, and um, in Georgia, of course, um, it's, uh, it's mainly an alcohol-driven experience uh, because they they toast you, and they end up toasting Mrs. Thatcher and the universe, and and by that time you're under the table, <laughs> and and as a foreign correspondent, of course, you you can survive off uh, alcohol and cigarettes uh, for years at a time. I remember putting great confidence in a story that I heard about a man in Ireland who had lived on Guinness, and they only discovered that he wasn't eating any solids when he got scurvy. So that's the sort of thing that you can do as a correspondent for months on end.
2: Has there ever been anything
1: you've refused to eat? In Rwanda, I trekked with a, a rebel unit from the Uganda border down to Kigali. It took several days, and we had no food on the way after it ran out after the first couple of days of carrying it in our packs. And I remember we ended up sleeping in somebody's garden and nobody was around and we began harvesting the carrots that we found in the vegetable garden. And then we discovered in the morning that the the family that had grown them uh, were in the garden. They'd been killed by the uh, extremists and uh, it went on like that month after month in Rwanda and all of the churches full of people who'd been killed and the roadsides, etc. And for... Quite a long time afterwards, uh, I just couldn't eat meat. I found it just impossible to to think about it. And the other thing was guavas, because to get vitamin C, we foraged the streets in uh, Kigali uh, for any kind of fruit that we could find. And I remember the streets were lined with guava trees. And so after that, I, I couldn't look at a guava for a, a, a few years. But um, I'm pretty much carnivorous now.
0: And how... Do you cope emotionally with being posted to to places struck by famine how do you how do you eat alongside that
1: it's interesting that you should ask that because thinking about this interview, I was remembering the Somali famine in one thousand nine hundred and ninety two when three hundred thousand people died, most of them kids under five and I remember the Irish delegation who visited for a few days stopped eating while they were in the country out of sympathy for the local people. And and I really got that, but I was there, I covered Somalia for, for years, and, and I was there for months at a time, and I covered the whole famine. And I remember feeling a deep sense of shame that I had an almost amplified appetite while I was in places of such desperation. I remember being in a town called Baidoa where 400 people would be taken out of the camps every morning and buried. And we would do that story. And then, you know, by sort of one or two o'clock in the afternoon, after a hard day's work, we'd have to eat. And I remember, you know, stuffing my face in a cafe while people were dying in the streets around me. So it, um, it's just something that you do. And I'm afraid that I've been in that sort of situation, quite uh, quite frequently. But to get over it, to get over it, I went back to a farm. And, and we bought a farm north of Mount Kenya in the uh, uh, Laikipia district, and we began building up a farm a couple of decades ago. And I became a disciple of John Seymour, who wrote a wonderful book called The Complete Guide to Self-Sufficiency. I think that he inspired that movement that led to the 1970s TV series called The Good Life, about people trying and failing to be uh, self-sufficiency nuts. And I've been a self-sufficiency nut for a long time. The aim is to grow as many of the vegetables and fruit and meat and catch what we can in the wild and live off that. And we've had a sort of competition with ourselves to try to avoid going to the shops and uh, we can manage it for several weeks at a time. Town is very far away, and I think that our record is three months without going to a town, to a supermarket. We need to buy things like olive oil and red wine and um, Worcestershire sauce, but, um, you know, if we can eat out of the kitchen garden, the food tastes, you know, the best that it can be. I can butcher a sheep, I can't butcher a cow... We never butcher a cow because there wouldn't be enough you know, space in, in the solar fridge that we have. But we can butcher a sheep and hang it for a few days and distribute it around uh, the family and, uh, and the workers on the farm. The only time we come close to any beef is if a lion <laughs> kills one of the cattle and the other day a lion killed a heifer... And uh, after it had finished half the carcass, we managed to uh, grab a sort of hind part of the animal. And uh, there was enough to go around for everybody on the farm. Chicken is organic. I mean, when I come to Europe, chickens are a, a dodgy choice on the menu because they just don't taste the same. And, you know, mutton is, mutton is something that you should eat rather than Lamb. I think that people in the West eat baby animals rather than mature animals, and the taste isn't the same. Guinea fowl, wild partridge, you know, th- these are the sorts of things that we live on on the farm.
2: Are there any British dishes that you miss and, and try to recreate in Kenya?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we go through Ottolengi and uh Delia. I, I'm a disciple of Delia's. You know, we, we we can still make those things. I wouldn't say that we... Spend our lives eating ethnic food at home, but we will have maize meal and eat a lot of curries and you know that sort of thing. But I think that the main thing is the freshness of the food. I love sitting around the table now with my kids when they're visiting us they now at university, and you know having a having a family meal or a Christmas meal I'd sort of like to avoid uh, turkeys for some reason we're still on those at Christmas. You know, I'd prefer a goose or a goat. We had goat last Christmas, which I thought was a preferable choice. And down at the coast, where my mother used to live, my late mother, we are still in that that hut on the beach. And it's just an absolute joy to, uh, in the morning, have a fisherman walk up the path from the beach with some coral fish or some tuna and perhaps some oysters or some... uh, vongole or some squid that have come fresh from the sea and and to have those during our holidays uh, at the beach i'd say that you know the quality of food in east africa if you if you can get it is extremely high i remember one time living in london and missing a fillet of beef from kenya and uh, i think it's highly illegal but a friend brought over a fillet from kenya and as we um, stuck it on the pan, I could smell the grass of Kenya coming off that meat. And there was something about the taste of it that was very evocative and, and, and made me quite homesick about, about home. But I, I'd say the favourite thing from the farm, and, and it's something that is universal for people here or there, is that I have some beehives. And when you harvest your own honey... And you take that first spoonful of the stuff when it's still very fresh, straight off the comb. There's something incredibly magical about it.
0: What are your happiest memories of food?
1: My happiest memories of food are those times when I was with my family. My father, who was an occasional visitor to home. I mean, he loved us very much, but he had to travel to make a living. You know, I remember him at the head of the table, um, sort of waving a raw onion around and, and reciting the Omar Khayyam and that sort of thing when we were together. Again, I remember I had a great friend called Carlos Mavrelian, who was a, a cameraman in Somalia. And, uh, and I remember him saying to us one day, let's just get out of all of this nonsense. And we went down to the market and we bought a kingfish, a very large pelagic fish. And we went down to the beach and he covered it with a crust of salt. And it was completely covered in in salt. And then he put it on the coals of a fire that had been burned down in a trench in the sandy beach. And the salt acts as a kind of a, a seal to it so that it doesn't, burn. It's very succulent inside the fish. And I remember just sitting on that beach, looking at sort of American gunship helicopters flying overhead, and enjoying a kingfish eaten on the beach with with Carlos, who, who later died in Peshawar in 1998. And that was a good memory. And then again, mad Christmases with my mother. I remember she was also obsessed with turkey at Christmas but she bought the turkey I think on Christmas Eve and kept it in the freezer and I remember somebody calling my wife and saying so what have you had for Christmas lunch and my wife said it's it's still defrosting on the bonnet of the car (laughs) Um, and then memories of, of celebrations and meals with with my kids and my family and my wife on the farm in Kenya, in a house that we built ourselves, eating food that you know somehow we've coaxed out of the ground. So I'd say that it's family meals, yeah.
2: Aidan, you've clearly eaten all sorts of interesting things, probably some of the most exotic things you've ever had on this podcast. We normally end with a question about your desert island meal. What would your desert island meal be? And you can have whatever you like.
1: I think it would be sea fish from the indian ocean caught that morning possibly a rock cod with uh, some limes from the garden and a, a pile of swahili rice but to start off with some of the oysters that we get on our coast it used to be that you could go down to the rocks with a with a hammer and a bottle of tabasco and just knock the oysters off the rocks and and that was fun but that um, I think everybody's done that so there are no oysters on the rocks anymore but a fisherman does bring us some oysters and he prepares them and shucks them so some of our little Kenya oysters and a rock cod with Swahili rice would be my ideal shared with friends.
2: Would you have anything for pudding?
1: tiramisu is the is the all-time favorite for everybody in my family and I think that it's um if it's made well it can't be bettered we have lots of uh, Italian people who've settled on the coast of Kenya and that's pretty good other than that I'd say a really good cheese and a decent wine to go with the cheese
2: well Aidan thank you very much for joining Table
1: Talk thank you very much
2: A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.